the road to recovery. You might be cruising down it. A friend or family member lost on it. Or the road is, well, still under construction. Relevant Recovery Radio is about getting to that destination of normal health, mind, or strength. Now, Relevant Recovery Radio, here to give you the keys, Larry Weedy Kind. Hello, welcome to this episode of Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host today. My name is Heather Mosier. I'm representing Matthew's Hope Detox and Recovery Program. We are in downtown beautiful Houston inside St. Joseph's Hospital. We are a 10 to 14 day detox and two year aftercare recovery program. And we'll tell you more about that later in the show. I'm glad you're with us today. I have an awesome guest on the show today, Angelina Hudson. Welcome to the show. Why, thank you. I'm glad to be here. And I think you told me right before we started that you're the new interim executive director. Yes, ma'am. Of NAMI. NAMI Greater Houston. NAMI. So that NAMI stands for the National Alliance for Mental Illness in the Greater Houston area, right? Yes. We cover three counties, Montgomery, Harris, and Fort Bend. Wow. So tell me, what does NAMI do? How did it start? Well, Well, actually, NAMI started on the national scene in 1979 and was really started in Houston by Tom and Carolyn Hamilton with the support of the local mental health authority in 1988. We're over 30 years old. And if you need us, you're so glad you found us. (laughs) Right, right. That's amazing. So what all do you do locally in Houston? So basically, we have four pillars. We offer psychoeducation courses for people to learn how to live day to day with these difficult diagnoses. They're chronic. They tend to be, you know, lifelong um, in terms of needing management and attention. Uh, We also offer support groups. We have awareness presentations and, of course, advocacy. We fight for the rights and services of adults living with serious mental illness. And I think that that's so important, the advocacy piece. Um, I I work in the substance use disorder side and I advocated at the Capitol when I was newly sober and got to see the process that you have to go through uh, to bring something in front of legislation to fight for, you know, human rights rights, mental health rights. Exactly. And and the laws are behind. Yeah, actually state the state of Texas ranks 50th in the country with the amount of dollars they spend per capita wow. on adults living with mental health conditions. And the truth is People with mental health conditions need support for housing. They need support of housing and employment. Um, And they need someone on the outside to kind of help them maintain, you know, regulation throughout Mm -hmm. their life. And there's not a lot of support for that outside of the jails, of course, Mm -hmm. and um, other, you know, jail diversion systems. And really, 30 percent of our homeless population is living with mental health conditions. Yes. I agree with that so much because working in the detox, uh, we do get clients come through that are dual diagnosis or maybe their mental health is the predominant issue and they're dealing with that with, with covering it up with substances. Oh, yes. Do you find that that's common? It's kind of hard to figure out what came first, the chicken, chicken or, or the, the egg, egg right? <laughs> right? So a lot of people will use, um, you know, just regular medication or they'll, uh, you know, psychotropic drugs or things that they can get on the street or illegal drugs, even alcohol, just to cover up yeah. the signs and symptoms of mental illness. And it takes an average of 13 years mm-hmm. for youth or adults to seek professional help even after they notice signs and symptoms within wow. themselves. 
And that's all attributable. Well, I don't want to say all. Part of it is access to health care, but the rest of it is the shame, blame, and guilt Mm -hmm. that is associated with these disorders. I have found that people would rather say, I have a substance use disorder than say, I have a mental Mental. health condition. I would say that that's, I've noticed that too. Do you think, what stigmas still exist in 2021? Well, of course, the picture of mental mental illness Mm -hmm. is criminal. Right. Right. So there needs to be this decriminalization. The fact that mental illnesses are illness just like any other. If you have a heart condition, kidney problem, any other blood disorder, you need treatment. And it's the same situation with brain disorders and mental health conditions. You need treatment. Ninety percent of people who actually find the right intervention, Mm -hmm. they go on to live successful lives. I agree with you. I have personal uh, experience in my family with this. Uh, when I was 12, my mom was diagnosed uh, with paranoid schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And and I didn't know that at the time. I know that now as an adult and after there's been, but back then, there wasn't these conversations about what was going on. It was very swept under the rug. It was, she was really afraid of having me taken away. That's it. The poorest person in America is a female with mental illness raising children. Yep. That is the poorest person in America because the lack of resources and support if you actually call for help sometimes the mental illness can be misconstrued as something where you're not a fit parent right that's right? what she was worried and about and so yes yes there have been cases where parents uh, especially single mothers will lose custody mm-hmm. of their children and have a very difficult time proving to the courts mm-hmm. uh, and society that they are an, you know a, an eligible parent again. yeah I agree because that was a big fear and she thought they were going to take me away and my dad was there in the home, but I remember that she had to take agree to the treatment and she had to agree to take the medication because I was a minor in the home. And so that meant I was safe or safer. And uh, so once she got on board with that and, and, and accepted the treatment, um, she's had bouts of amazing recovery. I mean, I think that with mental illness... It's a lifelong thing. It's cyclical. It's cyclical. It's cyclical. Yep. And so that's why NAMI purports that it's not just the medication. There is no silver bullet. Right. There is no one, you know. Cookie cutter crystal, answer. <laughs> crystal ball that's right. going to make it all better. It is the biopsychosocial approach. Yes. The bio being meaning the clinical medical side. Uh, the psycho is understanding how that illness impacts you. No two people with the same diagnosis mm-hmm. are, are going to present the same way. They will mm-hmm. need different supports. And and then the social part is find your people. Right. Find the people that are going to support, be your network of support, mm-hmm. and help you sustain your coping skills. You know, that's so right, because my mom's actually an identical twin. Oh, wow. And they both have it. And uh-huh. we're diagnosed late in life, like their late 30s, which I guess is really rare from what I've read about it. Um, but their treatments have been completely different. And and they're both functioning and, and able to take care of themselves. And my aunt had a job up until she retired. But it's been interesting watching the different modalities that have, that have helped both of them with the same illness. I mean, but if you track the stats, it's really not unusual. You said mm-hmm. in their late 30s. So we know that 50% of all cases occur between 15 and 24. Mm-hmm. And 75% of all cases are going to happen in, in your early 20s, somewhere oh, in there. Mm-hmm. But if it takes 10 years for you to seek treatment, <laughs> yeah. then bingo, you're in yeah. your 30s. And I think when you said the 13-year thing earlier, around, I think that there were symptoms and, and clues and things sure. happening. And it took years for people to really step in with my, my family's support and say, there's a problem. There's something right, going on right. here. Because people say, snap out of it. You need to act right. You know better. Right, right. That makes sense. Well, Angelina, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back you're listening to relevant recovery radio 
Welcome back. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Heather Mosier. Today, my guest is Angelina Hudson with NAMI. Welcome. All right. All right. So we were talking about these rates um, for how it takes a while for mental illness to really surface and be aware of what's going on. There's some clues and stuff. It's not usually like someone who has drug addiction or, or something like that, where it's very obvious right away if someone is, you know, a heroin user or something. And I think that when we look at what can the public do? So that's a good question, I think, for me to ask you. What? How can the public become more aware uh, or educated on mental health, mental illness, and its challenges so we can be more supportive as a community? Well, it's, it's really a hot topic right now, and there are so many organizations that are offering public awareness, uh, information, education series, specifically on mental health. Of course, NAMI has a huge public awareness platform with outreach presentations for every community, mm-hmm. hospitals, uh, Fortune 500 companies, even restaurants, mm-hmm. schools, of course. Um, churches, but uh, you know, there's mental health first aid that I know a lot of people have used um, as as something that they can take online to learn more about mm-hmm. it. But the the base thing that I think the public needs to know is the shame, blame, and guilt does not only exist in society towards the person. That shame and that blame and that guilt exists. The stigma is within them. So it's very, very difficult to connect with a person until you have first established trust. Okay. Once you establish trust and that person doesn't feel criticized or unaccepted or blamed for their own situation, then they're more likely to listen to you. You don't have to have the answer. Right. You just have to be willing to walk the journey. Right. I, I agree with you. It fits into the substance use disorder world, too. Uh, what I do at Matthew's Hope and meeting with these clients in detox. Uh, I'm, I'm aiming to win their trust because I have similar experiences that they've walked. They're walking through. I've walked through as well. And I want them to know that I don't judge them. And I don't think they're a bad person because they've relapsed or, or anything. I want them to know that I'm just trying to help you find a better life. Right. And honestly, there's an old saying that says that when the student is ready, the teacher Teacher will will appear. appear. So not only being that comfort person to say, I'm going to walk this journey with you. I don't know the answer, Mm -hmm. but I'm willing to find it with you. Um, But also understanding that everybody doesn't have the same goal as you may have for that person. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's making sure that that aligns as well, Mm -hmm. because you can tug and pull all you want. But until a person is ready to say, I'm looking for a better way or I need. uh, Can you give me a suggestion Mm -hmm. and maybe complete. um, And and let me talk about mental illness for a minute. Maybe they're not looking for a clinical diagnosis and uh, some drug to take, but they are looking for relief. Right. Well, get to the first rung on the ladder. Yeah. Okay. let's find your people. So at NAMI, we have a warm line. Mm -hmm. And so there are peers right now, uh, peer family members, peer people in recovery that are there answering the phones Monday through Friday, nine to five. And if you um, go to our Facebook and just type something in, someone will call you back. Go ahead and tell our listeners uh, what your Facebook or Instagram handles are and your phone number. Sure. So our warm line number is 713-970-4483. And again, it's 713-970-4483. That's our warm line. And when you hear someone on the other end, you are talking to someone who's been there, 
done that, got the T-shirt. There is no (laughs) blame, shame, or guilt in our office, let me tell you. And then our website or our Facebook is NAMI Greater Houston. Okay. And our Instagram is NAMI Greater Houston. Perfect. And so our listeners can go there to get more information. So along this line of the shame and and guilt, let's talk about the isolation factor. That's definitely a part of it. What have you noticed with the COVID lockdowns and and what we've went through the last year and a half with mental illness skyrocketing? You know, I was already dealing with my own issues with isolation, um, not being able to go and do the things that we normally do as a family. But one of the groups that we often forget are the people who are single. (laughs) Right. And they don't. They only live with maybe a cat or something. And so they're alone. Uh, their alone time is exponential. They don't even have family members mm-hmm. in the under the same roof to bump off. And now they didn't get to go to work anymore. They're, they're right. stuck at home. And then your students. You know, one mm-hmm. of the things that I'm recognizing is, especially in, in middle school and high school, the activities that students used to participate in Gone. and look mm-hmm. forward to yeah. as a rite of passage, those events are being altered or canceled. Yeah. Or So there's a lot of isolation going on. And so one of the things that I love about NAMI is that I call us like a clearinghouse. Right. So we're not the answer for everybody. Right. But you could call that warm line and we will help you connect to the services that might be more appropriate. Mm-hmm. So a lot of anxiety and depression yeah. has gone up. And depending on the age group, there are different nonprofits out there that have new services just to capture those populations. Right. And so we refer people you're like That's a resource mostly, broker. We are a resource <laughs> yes. broker. And honestly, if you're out there and you have a service that you're providing a special family, you want our, our warm line folks to know because we have a huge directory and we're adding to it weekly. That's amazing. That's amazing. I've noticed the same thing with the lockdowns with, with relapses from substance use disorder have skyrocketed and, and trying to watch people over because it's very uncomfortable to try to navigate maybe meetings on Zoom or if you have to meet with a sponsor to do step work or if you needed a therapist or a psychiatrist appointment. I've noticed with my own mom struggling to still regularly meet with her psychiatrist virtually. She doesn't understand. Yeah, you don't connect as it's not as warm a connection. Right. And as a matter of fact, some of our groups have gone to where they're meeting outside on a deck at mm-hmm. a church yeah. or they're meeting on a you know, patio or something because right. they're looking for alternate ways. And I don't believe we're ever going back. Right. I think they will continue to be this hybrid of Zoom, too. online classes and groups, and then some in person. I do, too. And, and so I'm the alumni coordinator at Matthews Hope. And so when someone comes through our detox, if they enroll in the recovery support, you get me and our team for two years post-discharge. And I'm really trying to meet them where they're at and meet their needs. Some people that need the virtual options, other people that crave and want and need the in-person options. Sure. And how can we safely do functions together? I think it's important to try to hybrid it and offer both to not leave right. leave anyone behind. Right. And then some sometimes your interventions are not mental health related at all. Right. Right. Sometimes what you need to do is find new people. Uh, so I've, I've talked to one young adult and, and he started playing rugby and, and going to rugby games uh, before it was different. It was like organized football, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But now there's these intramural. But he found it himself. He called and said, hey, I found something new to do. I'm right. going to do this. And it's helping that it's unlocking that 
that prison of depression. Something for he can him. get excited Something about. Something he can go and to. Look forward to. What do you think of the correlations between mental health and physical health, physical fitness, diet, nutrition, exercise? Okay, so there's three things that equal recovery, right? Okay. That's your treatment plan, whatever your clinical team is telling you mm-hmm. to do. You've got to have your own personal coping skills and then the network of support because the issue with having a problem with the brain is that you don't always know it. Right. Sometimes <laughs> you're the last one to know that, yeah. oh, that's not good. So the but the second part I talked about, the coping skills, that's the list of things you do that are not medication, right. that are not therapy. And so, yes, that could be um, your your diet as it relates to the minerals and vitamins that you take in. Mm-hmm. And if you're not taking enough in through your diet, then maybe you need to look at, you know, supplements or right. something like that mm-hmm. and get those things measured by your primary care physician. Right. Um, uh, not only diet, but also exercise. I've talked to people who've had a diagnosis of low-grade dysthymia, which is a type of depression, right? And exercise is just enough to get it done. But, of course, making sure that they make it to all the classes. So I've talked to a young, (laughs) really more than one, they've become the physical instructor. Right. Because you can't even have the class unless they're there. But (laughs) it's it's the one thing that really keeps them off the medication, right? The endorphins are important. They're very important. So find find your... Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. Me, I'm not a big, what do you call, gym? Yeah, me neither. Yeah, I'm just, that's not <laughs> my thing. But I have found that the gym has a pool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I found my people. <laughs> when COVID hit, I just took up yoga in my living room. Yes. And, and YouTube had some great, you know, beginner videos. And that was the way I tried to be, you know, in movement every day. Movement. Yeah. Yes. Finding something that you can enjoy doing. And it may be something new. You just keep trying things until you find your... You know, find your niche. I know my husband was so upset. He loves mountain biking, and he bought me a mountain bike, and I hate it. Yeah, it's got to be your thing. <laughs> it's got to be my thing. I like yoga, so uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. This is Heather Mosier. My guest today is Angelina Hudson with NAMI Greater Houston. Hello. Hello. All right. So before we went to the break, we were talking about new coping skills being one of the important pillars of recovery. What have you noticed that are really common positive coping skills versus maybe some negative coping skills? Right. Right before the break, we talked about fitness. So, you know, you do have some that just really turn to things like football, basketball, swimming, biking. Mm -hmm. You, You talked about your husband with the mountain biking. Yes. Um, but there are some people who have turned to other forms of coping skills like art, which oh. is really, really fascinating. Yep. You see people that are tapping into things like sewing and knitting has oh. come back. Crocheting. I see people I, do yeah. crocheting all the time. Like, now. And you're so young. <laughs> it's <laughs> but a thing. Yeah, it's a thing, right? And so Sudoku, people are just doing new things mm-hmm. now. Um, playing uh, instruments. Uh, you mm-hmm. see more people even performing on the corners now. Yes. I feel like I'm in New Orleans again you know (laughs) Um, but there are some negative coping skills and one of the number one things that we found through the research that people are turning to is social media especially like Mm -hmm. uh, Instagram where you just scroll and scroll and scroll and so there are some people who actually if they're awake they are 
stuck on the phone. Head is down, not able to look up, driving while Mm -hmm. um, on social media. And it really turns into its own addiction. It does. You know, the need to know, the need to have this constant feed. Stream of information. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what that's about is that it it's a numbing effect, right? Mm-hmm. Your brain is really not as active oh. and you're able to kind of like Check zone out, out mm-hmm. right? So I've, I've read a lot about that too. In fact, I'm one in my family that's always glued to my phone and it's definitely a problem. I gave it up for 40 days for Lent one year, a couple years ago, and I got used to it over time. But what I noticed is once I deleted social media and, and put my phone down, I felt so anxious. I, I didn't know how to sit with myself without it. I was like, what am I supposed to do? It's almost like someone that would quit smoking. Right. You, you know, I'm used to holding that. I'm used to scrolling. And I think that I read that it reacts in your brain receptors the same as like a cocaine addiction. Exactly. It is a type of addiction. And so we have to be careful that we don't transfer one one poor habit for another poor habit, right? So what I've seen, you know, I love wine. I've been, you know, I'm always looking at new glasses and (laughs) carafes and all this. But you know what they've come out with now? And maybe it's not new, but it's a glass that fits a whole bottle. Oh, my gosh. You know, that's just not... That's it's just not, not productive. Healthy. Yeah. yeah, it's just not healthy because it will create that zone out feeling. But living is so much better than not. That's living. what I felt like. And I'm currently back in a timing. I put a screen timer on my phone that tells me if I've reached my daily limit on social media. My right. iPhone does that because I'll go over it and, and, and I'm missing out on living life, living life. I want to connect with the people that live in my home with me. I want to have, you know, conversations face to face instead of being like, you know, commenting on a keyboard on a screen. I really want I need the human connection. Right. Human and even walking your dog or, you know, playing with your your pet or something. Do something other than remain sedentary and slipping off into those zone out practices. And I encourage anyone, whether it's recovering from, you know, mental illness or substance use disorder, finding the things that you like to do like you said whether it's painting or drama or theater or dance i see some people taking up some different dance classes and and it's so exciting to watch and here in houston things are opening back up um pretty pretty regularly there's there's some safety measures in place but things people are able to get out and do things absolutely absolutely and so it's important what have you noticed like one I used to work with teenagers that mm-hmm. struggle with substance use disorder mm-hmm. and, and co-occurring mental health disorders. And so what have you noticed with schools? Do they do enough to recognize uh, mental illness early on? How, what, what can schools do to educate there and is, support? There is currently a heightened awareness among uh, school staff and teachers you know, to look out for those warning signs. And, and NAMI does have a program called Parents and Teachers as Allies, which is an awareness program both for professionals uh, who work in schools and for parents okay. to begin to learn what those signs are, mm-hmm. how they manifest the most common diagnoses, and then how best to intervene, right? And it's actually the same presentation for the teachers as it is the parents because we want each group to understand their role. They're they're not, you know, the, the teacher doesn't have the same role with the student Right. As the parents do. So it's important for them to understand the limitations. Right. And the kid may these. be presenting at one place but and not another. I love this PowerPoint because it talks about what it looks like in public, mm-hmm. what it looks like at home, which right. can be remarkably different. Mm-hmm. And then what it looks like as the child gets older, if it's not treated. treated. Do you find that teenagers are predominantly resistant or uh, opposed or for seeking help and and 
admitting that they definitely may... the younger the better the younger the, the younger better. the better the earlier you begin to normalize the conversation mm-hmm. normalize the diagnosis and the fact that people do manage very well with the appropriate intervention mm-hmm. and support then they begin to to drive their own they get in the driver's seat of their own recovery oh, so they feel and, empowered by yes. moving forward in a and positive. they don't feel different they're right. like this is just the way i am right. but you have to and there is the rub the uh. family has to buy into this first right right so we are the child's first teacher and honestly what you teach them at home is really what sticks with them so i mean despite what they what you think initially that they're going to do everything they see on tv they really do hear you at home and they will model what you model and so one of the things that uh we don't we we don't encourage through nami or any nami affiliate is that we handicap our children by sharing all that they can't do Mm -hmm. but emphasize what they can do and then help structure their lives so they can overcome that's their a challenges. good point because um i suffered from drug addiction for many years and lost my children and i just got my son back he's 15 i got him two months ago and so i'm stepping back into this role of trying to model positive behavior i'm a completely different person now in recovery but i notice that <laughs> it's, it's interesting watching you know i want to make sure i'm praising him. I want to make sure that the dialogue that I'm teaching him is positive, good communication. I don't want to be like, hey, you got this bad grade on the test. I'm punishing you. I don't want that to be the source of our interaction. I want it to be mostly loving, mostly tolerant, mostly positive. Um, But as a parent, I do have to correct and instruct as well. But I think that it's about learning um, the proper balance of that. And now, as a sober person, I correlate that with my relationship with my mom. Wow. And, and I realize that I just need to be the daughter that God intends me to be to her, mm-hmm. not what she could do for me. And how can I support her? How can I praise her? How can I you know, tell her she did a good job cleaning the house that day, even if I really don't think that she did a great job? Like, I want to praise her and encourage her. She's doing the best she can. So we have a class called NAMI Basics. Mm -hmm. You can actually join a class online and go to the six sessions. And it's also basics on demand. You could take it in the privacy of your own home and nobody. I encourage the one where you're with other parents because you learn from other parents. parents. But the, the key is to figure out the best practices on how to raise a child that is truly dealing with a mild, moderate or severe mental health or behavior health condition. Right. There's so many things that you just really need to know. And there's um, there's other interface that you have, like with doctors, the schools, right. your extended family. And you have to know, you know, you have to know where you are and you have to understand what they see, right? right? right. And the limitations that they may have in helping you raise your child. But that's the one message that I think we have for all uh, families and, and it, particularly the parent. Mm-hmm. You cannot do this alone. alone. You cannot. Right. Um, even the best, you know, you talk about, you know, trying to say the right things, have the right practices, you know, um, use the right speech. But it's it takes more than it takes a village to raise a child. Right. And so, you know, there there are there are schemes. There are things that we have <laughs> through NAMI that we share with parents on who to put on your team right. to help advocate for your child. That's so important. But there are children that never come. To, like, listen, there's going to be kids that are never diagnosed. Right. Right. Yeah. They're going to be what I call uh, individuals that fly under the radar. Right. They're not symptomatic enough to really raise to really, the red flags. Right. To raise the red flag. And these these kids are in our schools. They're in our churches. They're in our synagogues. And, you know, we just have to 
be there for them as well, right. especially right now during the pandemic with mm-hmm. anxiety going up, depression going up and uh, kids are isolating even voluntarily. You may have someone who is secretly cutting right. or using their own system of, of you know, their own coping to, to yeah. get through these challenges. And, you know, the thing here is, again, education, education, right. education. Know what the warning signs are. Know, and then once you realize, oh, goodness, this is me. Y'all are talking about me. Then the parent needs to be educated. And there are a number of organizations. And I cannot say this enough. There are so many nonprofits, uh, agencies and and organizations in Houston that care. And they're offering services right now, whether it's a warm line or a support group or a psychoeducation class or a clinician or a psychiatric group. But get educated Mm -hmm. so that you'll know what your next, next to next. I remember when I first walked into this journey myself, I didn't know. I got the diagnosis Mm -hmm. for my child. I um, went to the drugstore. I picked up the prescription. So I have pills in my hand and I have doctor's notes. Right. But I don't know how to pick up Monday, Tuesday. I don't right. know how I'm going to make it. Right. And that is why psychoeducation courses are so important. I agree with you. Thank you, Angelina. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this quick break. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. to Relevant Recovery Radio. This is Heather Mosier. My guest today is Angelina Hudson with NAMI. And we are talking about different issues relating to mental illness and mental wellness and Mm -hmm. how to get there, how to advocate, how to educate, how to support, and how to love each other. We're all human. Right. We all struggle with different things. So, Angelina, I want to ask you about, uh, do you notice maybe different needs or things that crop up Per age group, like, for instance, what's something that's much more common with with teenagers versus something that's super common with the senior community, um, just in a general way? What, What can we look for? Right. So all of the diagnoses have a typical age of onset. Right. So you'll find that uh, your younger children will deal with ADHD, um, something called oppositional defiant uh, Mm -hmm. DMDD or, uh, you know, issues with anger and emotion at an early age because that's the way they express themselves. And then it becomes more defined as a person gets older. Oh, those were the earlier symptoms of bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. or the earlier symptoms of borderline. And then if a person makes it all the way through um, adulthood and they haven't. Uh, been diagnosed with anything then as a person gets older if they start struggling with things like um, depression a a great deal of loss or the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child or something like that as they get older then you'll see the depression and the anxiety being the the two largest and then maybe panic attacks and things like that but here we go Mental health conditions are in two broad categories. You have your mood disorders mm-hmm. and then you have your psychosis disorders, right? right? right. And then, some, bless our pee picking heart, some of us have both. Okay? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like the brain is touched by fire twice. Once right. with this extreme intelligence. And I think that's one of the um, 
myths that people don't understand. People think that there's a cognitive disability Mm -hmm. that goes with a mental health condition, and the opposite is true. Most of the time, the person is highly aware, very intelligent, and then they're they're also touched by this this thing that they have to deal with. Mm -hmm. And then the other issue that's broad is that depression and anxiety are a diagnosis all on their own. You can have a diagnosis of major depression, or you can have a diagnosis of, you know, anxiety disorder. Mm However, those are the top two symptoms that are the earliest emerging symptoms for all for other all it, <laughs> for right? all other disorders. I love that you bring that up because I I come from the twelve step world, right? <laughs> and we have a common idea or belief and and we say that anxiety and depression are the two most common symptoms of untreated alcoholism. And and so what we find sometimes for people who aren't truly dual diagnosed is that when you become spiritually fit, when you uh, get corrected and have your alcoholism treated through a spiritual program, the other symptoms sometimes lessen you know greatly or or alleviate completely. Okay. And then that's how you know which one you had. Was it a true dual diagnosis or was it all of a spiritual nature? It happened particularly specifically to me. I remember I was in my 20s and struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety, social anxiety, particularly isolating a lot. And I'm sober during this time. And there was more than a, of a decade where I had some different diagnoses and medications. But like you were saying earlier, I didn't have any of the new coping skills or support systems sure. to navigate. I was just trying to take this medicine and feel better. <laughs> and just feel better right in the moment. And I didn't. And and over time, um, my mental condition actually got worse, which led me to cope with drugs and alcohol. Okay. And, and so I went down that rabbit hole. But once I found the recovery program that I'm in that works for me, the whole goal is to become spiritually connected and spiritually fit. And then it says that your mind and body can follow in different ways. And I noticed that that happened for me. I don't struggle with anxiety or depression like I used to. I don't have to take any medication. And it's been that way for the five years that I've been sober, which is super cool. But sometimes that's almost taboo to talk about because people interpret that I'm somehow anti-medication or something. And I'm not. Right, right. I'm not. You see the whole combination. I see the whole combination of what's possible. Mm -hmm. And we really don't know for sure if it's, you know, emotional disorders and chemical imbalance or spiritual illness. And we kind of got to treat it all in tandem. And maybe it could all be a part of all three. All of it, right? yes. It could be all of it. So I was just at a, a church on Sunday where Dr. Matthew Stanford was speaking, and he's the CEO of um, the Hope and Healing Center, and he wrote a okay. book. Um, I keep a Ronis, It's called Grace for the Afflicted. Okay. And so in, in his speech on Sunday, he discussed how, you know, those who are believers um, purport that everything is spiritual. So yeah. to try to dissect it, yeah, it's impossible, it out, right? right? That your mind, body, and soul are all connected to yeah. our spiritual being. So, mm-hmm. uh, in that context, uh, yes, recovery programs that are spirit based or mm-hmm. you know have a spiritual context to them. Yeah, a part of that healing is getting in touch with your spiritual self and knowing mm-hmm. whose you are and your purpose and that sort of thing. Right. Um, I, I I believe that. If we want to talk about it in sterile terms, that is yet a coping strategy. True. Right? Absolutely. It is yet a, and there are a lot of people who say, and without this strategy, I wouldn't be here today. Right. I wouldn't make it. That mm-hmm. sort of thing. And so 
I I believe in WW, whatever works. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, and I love if, it. And if this is if, if this is the way that is going to reduce depression and anxiety in your life, mm-hmm. then it is definitely something. But I want to talk about spirituality from another okay. perspective, and that is many times, especially in the mental health arena, mm-hmm. that is the one place where people feel the most wounded right. within our churches, within our religious structures, yeah. right? Yeah. Because with alcoholism, it's still seen as somewhat of a chemical condition. Like if you can replace that behavior or if you can um, work with your brain right. chemistry, you can overcome, you know, right. addiction to alcohol and substance, you know, different substances. But with mental illness, it's almost as if there's still an idea that that's demon possession okay, yeah. or there's some evil sin in your life. And that is why right. you have this brain disorder. Right. And so because of that constant feeling of shame then there's that a disconnect. The it ex- right. And so, but here's the issue about the family member and the caregiver, though, mm-hmm. or even the person who's struggling. The church is the number one place people go. And that mm-hmm. has not changed in 70 years. Right. That people will go to their clergy before they go to a mm-hmm. clinical physician of any type right. to discuss. And then when they do go to the doctor, it's usually their primary care provider. And they'll talk about their physical symptoms. And not but the they, spiritual. They will not. Say, yeah. And that's still because of the shame and the stigma associated with, well, I pray and mm-hmm. I have faith, yeah. but I still have this thing that yeah. I can't get rid of. And so Sometimes I do believe people need both. They yes. need the spiritual support. You know, it wasn't wrong for them to go to their clergy. It's not wrong right. for them to right. pray. We're not saying that because that is their faith and that is what they believe in. But then you also need extra support yeah. from your, you know, your psychologist, your clinical psychologist or your psychiatrist. I could not agree more because we have a lot of people come through our detox at Matthew's Help and and I'll talk to them about the spiritual side of the program. And a lot of them want to latch on to only that and be like, well, I already believe or I already pray. I'm like, that's not the whole picture. <laughs> Let's look at this whole picture that we've got to change some habits. We, we need a good support system. You need to be uh, connected to people. Correct. We've got to you know, have a program where, where you're gaining momentum in life. And it's so important to get them, find something they can be excited about to head in the right direction. The biopsychosocial support. Absolutely. You've got you've to have, pay attention to all three. And we cannot separate this conversation from culture, right? Right. So you have religion and, um, and denominations are different based on yep. culture. And there are some cultures that don't even have vocabulary right. to cover the terminology that we use in the mental mental health arena they're not going to use words like bipolar and schizophrenia and Mm -hmm. borderline personality or OCD they're not even going to talk about it so then how do you tap into that person so I think there's an opportunity now for us to tap into the faith and value systems mm-hmm. of people who are struggling and suffering and find a way to help them with this biopsycho mm-hmm. approach, yeah. uh, biopsychosocial approach that may not have the same labels and terminology. Right. And so there, there's hospitals like HCPC and uh, UT Health and Baylor College of Medicine. They're looking for ways to improve family and individual engagement. Right, right. Used to be called compliance and okay. adherence. Okay. <laughs> but now it's engagement because okay. until you get into the on the same page 
working towards the same goal, then you're really working against, against the grain of it all. Yeah, it, I agree with you. It's so important to break down these different cultural or financial or socioeconomic barriers, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Well, Angelina, thank you for being my guest today. I've learned oh, a lot. I've enjoyed our conversation. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. If you'd like to check out our website for Matthews Hope, it's www.matthewshope.org or call us 844-263-4673. Thanks for listening.